From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Smoke hangs hazy over much of Colorado as wildfires continue to burn. And parts of the state have dealt with air quality advisories for weeks now, especially for sensitive groups. We'll ask a pulmonologist about staying safe outdoors during wildfire season in the middle of a pandemic. Then, a new effort to track places where history has been made in Colorado, places the history books may have forgotten or left out altogether. And speaking of making history, we'll talk with some of the first all-woman Space Force crew based right here in Colorado. So for me, I'm hoping that women will see that they have more opportunities than they might have realized growing up. And we'll check back in with a parent who's now bringing her son to work because school's gone virtual. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. As wildfires continue to burn in Colorado, the smoke adds a respiratory concern in the midst of a respiratory pandemic. The Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment has been issuing air quality advisories in parts of the state for weeks now, particularly for sensitive groups. Dr. Anthony Gerber has perspective both on Colorado's air quality and the risks it poses to our lungs. He's a pulmonologist at National Jewish Health and serves on the Colorado Air Quality Control, served on the Air Quality Control Commission for six years. Welcome, Dr. Gerber. Thank you very much. The air quality index, it tells us whether the air outdoors is unhealthy to breathe. Demystify that for me a bit. What is the air quality index and what is it actually measuring? Yeah, so the air quality index is supposed to convey in simple terms the risks of breathing the air. It's comprised of there are six different pollutants that comprise the air quality index. And what it does is it takes the, the highest level of any of those pollutants, and that's how it ranks the, the, the severity. The ones which we see here on the front range are typically particulate matters, so those come in two different sizes and ozone. And if either the particulate matters or the ozone are in the uh, above a certain level, that'll kick that air quality index into what we've been seeing a lot of, which is the moderately bad and unsafe for sensitive groups. Um, so that, that's sort of the way that index works. It's supposed to let people kind of normalize you know, these different pollutants so they can uh, um, understand what the, what the risk is to them. And I imagine wildfire carries with it a lot of particulate matter. Yeah, so what we're seeing with this, so the wildfires do two things. Obviously, you can go outside and just see that the air quality isn't good by, by just the visual test. So the wildfires have a lot of particulates, particularly that PM2.5. They also can contain um, some of the chemical precursors for ozone formation. So there are days when the, when the wildfires will give us a, a double whammy where the particulates are high and the ozone also can go up because of some of those, those chemicals that are in the wildfire smoke. Hmm. So how does the air quality index, how does it actually measure those things? Yeah, so what it does, so there's there's monitors, um, both EPA um, monitors, there's monitors from Department of Public Health. And what the Air Quality Index does, it takes sort of the, the, the highest level. So if there's a certain level of particulate matter that's metriced against this index. And if it's above a certain level, then that'll kick you into saying, hey, it's moderately unhealthy. Now, it doesn't do such a good job of, of measuring mixes. So you could have an air quality index, which is moderate 
when two or three different pollutants are in that moderately unhealthy range. And, you know, of course, we think that having more of those pollutants in the moderate range is likely to be a little bit worse than just having one of them. So, so it isn't a perfect index. What it's doing is it's just sort of taking the, the highest level of, of any of these, these pollutants that, that is in the air that day from one of these monitors and then, and then putting that into this index to give out the public health warning so that people can change their activities accordingly. So it lets you know the worst of it. Now, different websites, Weather Underground versus AccuWeather, for instance, they use different networks of sensors, so the air quality they report can be quite different. How do you recommend people find air quality reports to actually base their decisions? So I tend to think that the the best information is from the Colorado Department of Public Health and the Environment. So I think they do a good job. They have um, access to to accurate sensors and they validate them. So I do advise people to go to their website and follow the recommendations. And I I agree with the recommendations that they list. So I think that on the there there are days when when you look outside and you can smell smoke and you go to that air quality index on the CDPHE and it, it says it's moderately unsafe and that if you have pre-existing lung disease or you're older, perhaps you should stay inside. But what it, what it doesn't say is that for healthy people that they need to stay inside as well. Um, and so I, I think that, 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 that the CDPHE has good information and I think the public health recommendations that they give are based on the best available science. And when they do have those recommendations that it's unhealthy for sensitive groups, who does qualify as a member of that sensitive group? So, um, you know, there's sort of a, a blanket um, recommendation for, you know, for, for really young children whose lungs are still developing and for the elderly. And then the rest of that sensitive group is really comprised of people with pre-existing health conditions. Um, so I think people with, you know, severe heart disease or um, pre-existing lung disease, uh, smoking-related lung disease. Now, some people might have mild asthma, but one of their triggers can be pollution. And so they'll know if they go outside and run and they suddenly are wheezing and short of breath. And then they would, you know, they, they would then recognize that they are in one of those sensitive groups. So again, it's, it's a one-size-fits-all recommendation but 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 how the individual person who may or may not be in a sensitive group might might feel when they're out there is really is really an individual um, the, the individual interaction with that uh, global recommendation that we make. And speaking personally here, I have asthma and pollution does irritate me. So I canceled plans to go biking with friends this weekend. And I feel like so many people are caught between a rock and a hard place where they have to choose between their lung health and their mental health and the benefits of exercise and meeting up with friends and outdoors where we can socially distance. So um, it's interesting you say if somebody's not experiencing symptoms from breathing smoke, they should still have some or should they still have some concerns about pollutants from wildfires? It sounds like maybe it's still okay to go outside and not worry that they're doing damage to lungs, um, even if they're not coughing. Yeah, so it's a really great question. And, you know, I think the first point is that, you know, not all wildfire smoke is created equal. And so, you know, when those wildfires are burning, cars or, or burning into neighborhoods and really become more, you know, semi-urban fires than, than some of those, uh, some of the things which are burning might be more toxic. But the, the general particulate matter pollution, we don't think that it does a lot of long-term damage to people with otherwise healthy lungs. And so if you're not having a lot of symptoms, even though, you know, maybe it smells a little bit 
and, and you feel a little bit uncomfortable. We, we, of course, think exercise is really important, especially when people are, are stuck inside during the pandemic. And so you're, you're right. There is a balance between feeling like you're keeping your lungs safe and also engaging in, in exercise, which has benefits for your lungs as well. Um, and I think, again, it's for, for people who don't have severe lung disease, it's a little bit of a personal decision as to, as to how to how to balance that 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 fear of, of, uh, of breathing in something that doesn't smell so good with with obvious, mm-hmm. the obvious benefits of being outside and, and exercising. And in just a few seconds we have left, how are you thinking about the interactions between smoke and the pandemic? You know, so I think we've touched on some of the issues that, that people's activities are so limited during the pandemic that it's hard to take exercise away. At the same time, um, you know, there is is data, not as much for, for COVID-19, but there's some general data that, that you have an increased risk of getting viral infections um, and lung injury um, in association with pollution. So, you know, I think that what I would encourage people to do is, you know, if they're not in, in, in one of the high-risk groups, to exercise but continue to follow all of the precautions. Um, so, you know, masks, try not to touch your face, um, rub your nose, all those sorts of things. If you're exercising in a group, do that in a socially distanced way. And just be aware that, that you know, that, 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 that there might be a little bit of an inter- interaction between your risk of getting infection. But again, um, you know, we need to exercise, we need to be outside, and we need to, you know, maintain our mental health as well during the pandemic. Thank you so much, Dr. Gerber. My great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Dr. Anthony Gerber is a pulmonologist at National Jewish Health and served on the Colorado Air Quality Commission Control Commission for six years. When we come back, making sure historic moments aren't forgotten in Colorado, especially if they were never written about in the first place. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. While journalism is retreating in many places across the country, CPR is putting more resources to work for you. Communities all over Colorado are in need of critical information, and your support ensures that trustworthy news remains freely available to Coloradans everywhere. As demand grows for CPR services, so does the need for additional resources. Your membership helps fund the important work ahead. A reliable way to give is monthly as an Evergreen member. Get started at CPR.org. What if you could bring a historic building's forgotten past to life? Landmark speeches, gatherings, parties. There's a growing movement to locate places in Colorado where important historical moments happened but were never recorded. Kathy Rosett is the executive director of the Colorado Historical Foundation. Hi, Kathy. Hi. And Kathy, the Colorado Historical Foundation received three grants to find little-known stories of three groups in Colorado, the women's suffrage movement, African-American history, and the LGBTQ communities. Why focus on these three groups? Well, um, you know, the, the foundation, we do a lot of work preserving and protecting historic sites throughout Colorado because, you know, from a news perspective, it's the who, what, how, when, and where that makes up a good story. And so we really focus on the where, the sites. Because knowing where these, um, you know, knowing where these important events actually happen and for a person to be able to either physically experience that site or imagine themselves being in that site, I think it really gives a person a sense of authenticity and connection to their own history. And then, I mean, unfortunately, as we've been talking about a lot, especially in recent months and in recent years, a lot of the telling and recording of history has really been by people in, in positions of privilege and power And so the opportunity to really look into these stories of people who are not in positions of privilege or power have not been historically was really exciting to us. And that's why we jumped on this opportunity. So tell us about the women's suffrage movement in Colorado. What are you learning from your work? 
Well, there's been a lot of research on women's suffrage in general in Colorado. I think the missing piece was being able to, to actually call out where these things specifically happen, and that's where we came in. So what we've um, what we've noticed, there's some really well, well-known sites like Garden of the Gods down in Colorado Springs. Um, that played host to a couple of different events celebrating women's rights, um, we think as early as 1877. Um, there's a bunch of residences around Colorado from well-known suffragists, um, like the Molly Brown House in Denver, Ellis Meredith, she was from Denver, and Lucy McIntyre in Fort Collins. And then another way we looked at it is um, tours of natural, su- excuse me, national suffrage leaders coming through Colorado, such as Susan B. Anthony. Um, In 1877, she toured Colorado by train and really made an effort to visit a lot of the outlying towns, the mining towns in Colorado, and really talk up the right to vote in that first campaign, which unfortunately failed. Um, But she stopped in places like Lake City, and there was such a crowd of people that showed up to that event. She couldn't hold it inside the courthouse like she wanted to. She had to host it on the steps so that everyone could hear her speak. And apparently it was so inspiring that the very next day, the men and women in that town formed a local um, suffrage association. And an interesting story about that tour is is we learned that um, Miss Anthony, who was uh, traveling from upstate New York, she was less than thrilled, shall we say, with the the rough and rowdy crowds in Colorado's mining towns. So she vowed never to come back. Now, the interesting thing in this project is you're aiming to find stories that didn't necessarily make it into history books. So where do you go to learn about the suffrage movement in Colorado? You know, like I said, there there is actually a lot of research on that, but it um, it there's a lot of different sources, whether it's letters, journals, newsletters from societies. Um, th- there's different scholarly publications. Uh, a little bit you can be gleaned from community newspaper articles. For us, the challenge has been how do you cull through that and find the locations where this history has happened? Because it's not like you can just drive or walk down a street one day and, and look at a particular building and based on its architecture or building type say, hmm, I bet that played a, a significant role in women's suffrage. I mean, it, that's just not how it works. So, you know, it's really culling through these documents and figuring out who were the people behind the movement, where did they live, where did they work, where did they organize um, letter writing campaigns, where did they give speeches, and that starts to bring forth where these sites um, actually happen throughout Colorado. And what about the LGBTQ movement in Colorado? For so many years, people met in secret out of fear. Does that mm-hmm. make finding important history about LGBTQ people really tough? It can. I, I will say there's been a lot of documentation about locations in Denver specifically. Um, thankfully, a lot of that research has already happened. But outside of Denver, I think it's going to be a challenge to uncover some of those places. And we really do welcome any public insight into this project as we, um, you know, we're just getting started in this one. Um, one of the most significant historic events was um, at the Boulder County Courthouse, where the county clerk, Cleola Rorex, issued the first same-sex marriage license in the United States in 1975. So that's huge. But like you said, these more um, secretive places, you know, these places where people who identified anywhere on that LGBTQ spectrum felt welcome, felt like they could fully express themselves uh, through their gender identity and their sexual orientation. Where were those places in their communities throughout Colorado, especially outside of Denver, is really what we're seeking right now. Let's bring Rod Barker into the conversation. He owns the historic Strader Hotel in Durango, which was in the Green Book. Tell us a bit about your hotel. 
Uh, the Strader was built in 1887, and we have about 133 years of, uh, of history behind us. Our family has owned it for 94 of those years, uh, starting with my grandfather, uh, who bought the hotel in 1926. Uh, my dad uh, came in in 1954, and I've been running it since 1983. So we, we have a lot of history in, in the outlands of Colorado. We've got three generations that own this hotel. Now, the way that this intersects with Kathy's project, where they have grants to study the African-American history in Colorado that wasn't recorded, is your hotel was actually in the Green Book, and that was a guide for black people traveling during intense segregation in the 1930s and 1960s. It identified safe businesses and communities across the country. Some of these are well-recorded, like the Rossonian Hotel in Five Points, and you actually recently found out that the Strader Hotel is in that book as well. Yes, that was a wonderful discovery for me. Um, we had no idea that that was the case, and apparently my dad put uh, the hotel in the book in uh, 1962 as a place welcoming blacks in their travel. And I, I can only imagine how difficult it might have been for uh, a black person or a person of color coming to rural Colorado because... Um, you know, it may not have felt so welcoming all the way around and being one of very few. Uh, so to have a place where you would be welcome, I think, was really a great thing. Now, as a white business owner, your father could have lost business by welcoming African-American folks. Do you know how the community of Durango reacted to black people staying at the Strader Hotel? I really don't know. Uh, my dad, uh, you know, I was pretty small at the time. But I know that uh, my family, my dad and my, uh, my mom and, and the rest of our family has, um, I think it, in our DNA, we just like to welcome people. It's, it's part of our, our nature. And so um, I'm sure that my dad, even though he might have taken some heat, um, would have stood up to that pressure. He was good that way. He, he didn't uh, let people push him around much. Tell me about some of the other places that you're learning about. We heard from Rod about the Strader Hotel in Durango. Yeah. You know, a lot of them, I think you, you said, they are well-known in Denver and pretty well-documented. Um, Pueblo also had a predominantly black neighborhood, and a lot of the sites were located there. And as well along Highway 50, because that was, at the time, 1930s to 1960s is the period that we're looking at, that was the main east-west route to travel, to take road trips through Colorado. So we have actually found documentation of sites all along that highway. Um, unfortunately, a lot of them have been demolished or significantly changed, so they're, they're not necessarily recognizable as they once were at that time. Um, you know, a couple examples, there's there's what's currently a hair salon in Montrose, Colorado. It used to be a car garage where you can go get your, your car repaired as you're traveling. Um, there's also a, a spa in Canyon City. I'm seeing a theme here. <laughs> um, it used to be a restaurant and music club where um, black men and women were welcome to come for entertainment as they traveled through. Now, Rod, I want to go back to you. You named your rooms in your hotel after legendary people in Durango. Who was Frank Fitchew? Frank Fitchew was uh, the oldest son of a freed slave from the mid-1800s, born in St. Louis. Uh, he moved out to Colorado and became a porter at the Strader Hotel, uh, and he also took a job at the First National Bank. Um, he was uh, quite a fellow, had a huge amount of integrity, and uh, one night uh, a local gang of thugs had decided they were going to rob the bank, and 
were pressuring Frank to let him in on a particular night. Um, and he knew that he, his life was actually in danger from this group. But instead of uh, acquiescing, he just simply told the president of the bank about the plan, and they arranged to have uh, the, the law enforcement there. And so when he opened the door to let him in, they had a different welcome than they were expecting. So Frank was um, was really quite financially sound also. He uh, apparently had a, a gold and silver mine that he invested in and uh, became a, a community leader if, uh, back in that time. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for joining us. Kathy Rosett, Executive Director of the Colorado Historical Foundation, and Rod Barker, owner of the Strader Hotel in Durango. One place the Colorado Historical Foundation is researching is Wink's Lodge. That's a historic restaurant in the mountains built in the 20s where black people could relax and enjoy a meal. On Thursday's show, we'll talk about the only resort west of the Mississippi built especially for black Americans with the perspective of three generations. Let's reintroduce you now to a Denver parent named Natalie Perez. When we first talked with her last month, she was trying to figure out how to educate her fourth grader, Roman Ortiz, this fall. You might say it came down to a split decision, as in a split schedule. On Monday, the first day of remote learning for Denver Public Schools, Roman logged on from home. We spoke with his mom a couple of hours into the day. It was weird, but it felt okay because he was just so happy and excited. So it just felt like... Maybe he's more ready for this than I am. (laughs) Roman is home today, too. But the rest of the week, he'll grab his laptop and head off to his parents' restaurant with his mom. He will be coming to work with me. He'll be sitting in the back, and hopefully I'll be able to, like, check on him. We still haven't opened for dine-in, so during the week, it's pretty calm. But we have our weeks where it's, like, slow, and then it's really busy, so... I'm just nervous as to how it'll look once we go to work on Wednesday. That's how school will be for Roman and his family for the foreseeable future. He has a pre-existing medical condition, and it's likely he'll continue remote learning even if DPS goes back to in-person classes later this fall. On the plus side, Perez says that Roman enjoyed remote learning last spring, and he's happy to try it again. I'm optimistic. He still gets to see his teachers every day. He'll still be able to see kids every day even if it's through like the camera I'm just trying to like make it as least stressful for him as I can that's Natalie Perez she owns a restaurant in southwest Denver where her son will study several days a week this fall when we come back Women make history in the Colorado-based Space Force. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Early on in the protests for racial justice, Colorado Matters got reading recommendations to better understand this moment in America. 
And now we invite you to read one of those books with us. The History of White People by Nell Irvin Painter chronicles this idea how whiteness is an artificial thing as well. Pick up the book, The History of White People. Then join us for a live video chat with the author, September 22nd. Details at CPR.org slash turn the page. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The most critical mission at Schriever Air Force Base outside Colorado Springs is managing the global positioning system. That's the GPS, the same system that provides the information for everything from Google Maps to the exact timing of bank transactions. It's also the U.S. Department of Defense's largest constellation of spacecraft. The warfighters in the 2nd Space Operations Squadron commanding the GPS and the group made history recently when a team of eight women took command of one of the system's satellites. That's a first for the newly formed U.S. Space Force. On the line from the 2nd Space Operations Squadron, we have First Lieutenant Kelly McKay and Staff Sergeant Kelly Malone. Welcome both of you to Colorado Matters. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Staff Sergeant Malone, let's make sure we understand what made history here back on July 23rd. You're an all-female team that was essentially handed the keys to one of the GPS satellites, right? Correct. Yes. One of our newest Block 3 satellites um, we were given is called SCA, Satellite Control Authority, on July 23rd. And because that's a big event as is, we usually look at, like, who can we put on crew together to to accept this satellite? And it just so happened that looking at the roster with everybody, you know, same qualifications, same training, they looked at the roster and were like, whoa, we can have an all-female crew for this on top of, like, tying in the whole uh, 100-year celebration of the passing of the 19th Amendment. And first, Lieutenant Kelly, tell me a little bit about what that means for you. Uh, For me personally, I'm very excited that we got to have this opportunity. I've obviously never gotten to work on an all-female crew before. These were women that I've wanted to work with. They're close friends of mine and co-workers. And, you know, growing up, you don't see too many women in STEM or women in recruiter videos for the military or science or physics. So for me, I'm hoping that women will see that they have more opportunities than they might have realized growing up. And we should clarify that your team is not the first all-female team in the history of the military, right? Correct. And First Lieutenant McKay, describe what is the team actually doing? What is its job? So our job, we're a global service. We have about 5 billion users worldwide. We provide uh, position navigation and timing to both civilians and to warfighters downrange. And so what that does on a day-to-day basis, we basically maintain the health and the welfare and the functionality of the GPS satellite constellation. And so if you work on one satellite, does it mean that there's a team like yours monitoring each GPS satellite at all times? Yes. Uh, we, we have 30-plus satellites that we try to contact, and we're 24-7 ops, so that's how that kind of works. And with the Space Force being the first new military branch created since the 1940s, does this provide the opportunity for the branch to focus more on inclusion and diversity? So I can't say really moving forward with Space Force. We don't know what that's going to look like. Um, We'll have to see together what that's going to be for females in the future and other diversity opportunities. And Staff Sergeant Malone, the tech industry and other STEM jobs are typically heavily male-dominated. And despite your team, that's still very much so the case in the military, right? Um, I would say so. Uh, For our squadron specifically, there's about 20% females out of everyone. And most of them, I believe, myself personally, I do not have a STEM degree, um, but I know a lot of the officers do. That's what they wanted to do. That's what they went in. Um, For an enlisted side, it's not a requirement. 
but it's definitely it's definitely an awesome field. Now, in the tech side, the satellite that you've taken command of is one of the new GPS-3 satellites. Can you briefly describe what these new satellites provide over older models? So for warfighters downrange, it enhances our signal and our accuracy. Um, and for the civilians, it's going to help with the timing and everything. Uh, Sergeant Malone can probably talk to that a little bit more. So with the civilians, um, I don't think a lot of people realize that a lot of day-to-day life relies on the timing aspect of GPS, not just the actual, hey, I'm going here, Google Maps is telling me this. Um, the farming industry, the banking systems, the every single ATM you use, the hospitals, um, utilities, all rely on our standard timing from the GPS satellite. And these are an improvement over older models in that? Yes, They'll have about, like I said before, about a three times increase on accuracy. Wow. And so for someone who may have a picture of Space Force, it's a a great big space command room or something like that. What does your day to day look like? How do you actually control a GPS satellite? So that's what the satellite system operator and the satellite vehicle operator do. We're um, a two person team. Basically, the vehicle operator is an, an, an officer. They're the ones double checking everything, telling us, yes, we're good to do this. Yes, we're good to do this. Us as the enlisted side is the actual satellite system operator who sends the commands. How I like to tell people it is, is picture like you're driving your car and all these like alarms go off like, oh, no, your tire's flat. Our job is to go up there and look to see, okay, what exactly it is. Fix it. If it's something we can fix. If not, we call in the engineers and the experts. Um, But we we contact we don't fly them, um, but we contact the satellites all throughout the day for 24-7. And we do, when she means contact a satellite, that's our ground stations sending us telemetry. We're connecting that satellite up in space, sending the telemetry down. And then the satellite vehicle and satellite system operators are reviewing each individual point on that telemetry to make sure the satellite, is it healthy? Is it functioning properly? Can we diagnose it if something's wrong? Is there something that we need to do special on the satellite for that day? And that's just what it looks like day-to-day operations, uh, depending on whichever shift we are, what time of day it is, you know, what we're doing. And to go with that, so we have uh, six-month rotation periods, five crews on at a time. Uh, Each crew is comprised of eight military members and two civilian members. And so they're on doing the 24-7 ops for those six months. When you come off of crew, you're into what we call dwell. You go to back shops for all the different variations of the satellite. um, And then you learn more. You're doing training. You're doing more training. You're doing advanced scenarios. You're like taking control of the health of the satellite. Like, oh, we have to do this, this time, this, this time. And then we pass that information. There's also all kinds of exercises that we're allowed to go to that we get selected for uh, based on performance and qualifications and everything like that. And of course, our dwell time also includes our modernization efforts, such as putting the block threes on orbit. Truthfully, like we don't think about it because it's our day to day life. Like this is our job. This is what we were trained for. This is what we're qualified to do. So it's to us. It's just. It's another Monday. It's another Tuesday. We're just going to work and doing our job. But when you step back and you realize just every piece that we touch, like what GPS affects, then it's kind of mind blowing. We walk into work just like everybody else does, coffee in hand, lunchbox on my side. And (laughs) it's not until later on when you see an article released or you see the impact that we've had on the news that you realize just what we're doing every single day. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for the opportunity, and, and thank you to our leadership and everybody else here. First Lieutenant Kelly McKay and Staff Sergeant Kelly Malone from the 2nd Space Operations Squadron at Schriever Air Force, Air Force Base. They made history last month as part of the first all-woman team to take control of a GPS satellite. Hey. 
While some students are going back to school in person across Colorado, most won't be able to play sports this fall. And just like with schoolwork, that has ripple effects into college careers. Lindsay Fent talked with student athletes about these extraordinary times. Since he was little, Caden Dowler has wanted to play Division I football. He's 17 now and plays linebacker at Fossil Ridge High School in Fort Collins. When the pandemic closed down his gym back in March, he wasn't about to let that get in the way of his conditioning. Dollar did what exercises he could in his house, and a few times a week he took his pickup truck into the alley, popped it into neutral, and pushed it up and down the road. Once you get it rolling, it might not be too bad, but it's pretty heavy to get going. It's good for you, though. But Dollar's dreams of impressing recruiters during his senior season have stalled. Due to the continued spread of the novel coronavirus, football has been pushed to the spring. By then, most colleges will have already made their recruiting decisions. You play high school for the experience, but you play clubs for future career. And I think for a lot of people, it's really hard to make that decision. Layla Hilton is a sophomore and plays volleyball at Thomas Jefferson High School in Denver. Hilton hopes to play in college, but most of the scouting for that sport happens during the club season. With high school volleyball pushed to the spring, those two seasons will overlap. She worries she may have to choose between her competitive team and a quintessential high school experience. High school volleyball is just a way to get connected to people from your school that maybe you usually wouldn't be friends with particularly. And at the end of the day, we just get together to do something we love, and I think that's really important. Some serious players are even moving to other states where coronavirus cases are low, and sports will be on a regular schedule. There, they can fit themselves into a normal recruiting timeline. T.J. Rubley is the head football coach at Highlands Ranch High School. He says some of his players are looking to Iowa, where football is still scheduled for the fall. The young guys will have a choice to make. You know, it'll be tough. You know, do you play my junior year, get film, be able to get recruited, get offered, and be able to go into camp the right way? Or do I wait and hope the rosters aren't full? At least one Colorado athlete is already in the process of moving to play football. Rubley's son, Jake. He's Colorado's top football recruit. He's already committed as a quarterback to Kansas State, but he's graduating early and won't be able to play in the spring. For him, it's either move and play or don't play at all. And, you know, his college coaches want him to play. They want him to get more experience under his belt, playing in real games. You know, you can not You can train all you want. You can get bigger, stronger, faster in the fall. But if you're not playing games, you just can't replace that. Even athletes who play in the spring or those who will have a normal season in the fall have run into recruiting problems. Normally, Coaches meet with players in person before they recruit them. The NCAA limited that during the pandemic. That closed the door for some players who hadn't yet gotten recruited. Cale Gilmore coaches baseball and softball at Broomfield High School. I saw some of the devastation of the kids, you know, in the baseball program. And, you know, for some of them, it means opportunities in college. But there is some hope for high school athletes. As of now, all 26 of Colorado's sports have been cleared to play at some point during the school year. Some sports, like softball, will even start around the same time as normal. One, two, three! It's all free! We Hadley Reichert and her teammates on the Broomfield softball team met up for practice last week. She's a senior and says that the chance to play has been a bright spot during a dark time. I don't know if we'll have football games or I'll be able to go to my last homecoming dance, but... I'm just so glad that we get to play, and I get to play my last season of high school softball. 
Reichert is one of the lucky ones. She did get a college offer despite the pandemic and will be at North Florida University next year. For CPR News, I'm Lindsay Fent. At the beginning of the show, we talked about dealing with the smoke from wildfires burning right now in the state. Climate change means hotter and drier conditions. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis spoke with climate scientists who say that this is a glimpse of the future. Despite the intense heat and smoky air, John Olmsted decided to go fly fishing this week. He traveled from his hometown of Vail to a spot on the Eagle River near Dotsero, just a few miles east of the Grizzly Creek fire that has scorched Glenwood Canyon. I can definitely feel the smoke on my eyes. They're, they're burning. I've only been out for a couple of hours, and that was half the reason I quit fishing. Was just my eyes are starting to burn a little bit. And the water had warmed to the point where fish start to get stressed and sluggish. Olmsted said he can't really fish all day anymore. Which isn't good. It's almost becoming the new norm. So far, 2020 is Colorado's third driest year on record and the 12th warmest, according to the state climatologist. About 75 percent of the state is experiencing severe drought and more than 175,000 acres have burned this summer. The flames have shut down Interstate 70, have threatened beloved natural treasures, and the smoke means many people are breathing unhealthy air. Colorado climate scientists say we should expect more summers like these, and worse if carbon emissions aren't reduced. Russ Schumacher is the state climatologist. What we're seeing here is indicative of the fact that when the hot, dry years come around, they're hotter and drier than most of the time when they've occurred in the past, and that's pretty well in line with what climate projections have been saying for some time. Schumacher says not all summers will have this detrimental mix of hot weather, severe drought, and major wildfires. But I think the frequency of these kinds of summers where we get in these hot, dry conditions is probably going to increase. For Colorado State University water and climate researcher Brad Udall, he sees the summer as an indicator of what our future will be. Frankly, our climate's not stable right now. It's, it's changing underneath us. And as bad as this is, it could get worse. A Washington Post report shows that some western slope counties have already warmed more than two degrees Celsius, double the global average. It's the same area where the Pine Gulch fire is currently burning, now the second largest fire in recorded state history. It's also the area's driest year on record. Increased heat and dryness, all of this means more wildfires. Without climate change, half of these fires wouldn't happen. Half of this acreage would not be burned. And it just brings home how these hot and dry periods add to fire danger and and fire impacts. Jennifer Balch is the director of Earth Lab at the University of Colorado Boulder. She studies how human activity influences wildfires in the United States. We're seeing the effects of climate change in the here and now through the lens of how wildfires are impacting our communities. Balch says there are three ingredients needed for a fire. Dry conditions, fuel to burn, and a spark. People are effectively changing all three of those. Along with warming the climate, we have changed fuels. We introduce invasive grasses. We bisect um, with roads and homes. And we also supply ignitions. She calls this time an important moment of reckoning and says we have to figure out how to live with more wildfires. It's unrealistic to expect our firefighters to just put fires out. And, you know, frankly, we're asking too much of our firefighters to deal with these extreme fire events under hotter conditions. Mike Lester is the director of the Colorado State Forest Service. He says that fire suppression over the last century has greatly increased the number of trees and available fuel. 
He says forest management needs to change. It's going to take an investment in our forest to try to bring that forest health around to where the fires that we do have, which we will have, are low to moderate intensity fires. But we really haven't made those investments in our forest, and so we find ourselves in the situation we're in today. About half of Colorado's population now lives in areas where forests and homes collide. With more wildfires, Lester said there are decisions to make. We're either going to manage it through fighting fire and evacuating people and watching them lose their homes. Or we can fight it by being proactive, and that's going in and doing some active forest management, letting some burns go. But, you know, those are choices, and we're making those choices right now. Climate researcher Brad Udall says the big worry for him is that a summer like this is just a taste of how bad it could get. But if carbon emissions are significantly reduced, Udall says we can stop it from getting worse. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. Now we take you into the polar night. What does it take to get a number? The numbers that we read in books, see on maps, and hear in the news about the Arctic. Numbers describing sea ice thickness, snow depth, ocean and air temperatures, and clouds. Numbers that explain why the sea ice is decreasing and how that impacts all of us living on this planet. It's September 20th, 2019 in Tromsø, Norway, the gateway to the Arctic, and a team of scientists and crew are packing up and getting ready to set sail to conduct a year-long scientific expedition in the Central Arctic Ocean. It's called Mosaic, the multidisciplinary drifting observatory for the study of Arctic climate. That's from the new documentary, Into the Polar Night. The University of Colorado Boulder released the 30-minute film this month. It documents a unique scientific expedition to the Arctic. One of the coordinating researchers is Matthew Shoup from CU. He returned to the Arctic in May to continue his studies on sea ice and climate change. Let's listen back to my discussion with Shoup just days before he set off on the Mosaic mission last September. Matthew, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. You've been traveling to this area of the Arctic for your whole career, 22 years. Will you paint a picture of what it looks like there and what it feels like? The Arctic is uh, fantastically diverse. It's got Arctic tundra, it's got sea ice, ice sheets, so many different scenes. And, you know, each time I've been there, there's been kind of a unique manifestation of the Arctic with all kinds of different ice. The sun is amazing, especially in summertime when it circles the sky. The winter times are dark. There's often animals all over the place. Uh, So it's really an amazing place that really is captivating every time I go there. And for this project, scientists are going to be getting off of ships and working on that sea ice. Tell me a little bit about where the light's going to be coming from, because it's dark there in the winter. Will you be using spotlights, or how will that work? Yeah, when we first get there in the winter, it'll be dark for a number of months, uh, and the ship will provide a lot of light with, you know, big spotlights. Uh, But we're actually going to try to minimize the use of those big spotlights because we don't want to affect the biology there that we're also trying to study. Uh, And so really we'll be using headlamps, uh, ideally red headlamps, that will help to minimize the impact on the biology but allow us to kind of work on, you know, our, our smaller focused projects. Scientists from several disciplines will be involved in this project, but is there a common question that you'll be looking to answer in different ways? Yeah, really the sea ice is this kind of central focus for all of us. 
many scientists are coming from different disciplines. You know, I'm an atmospheric scientist. There will be biologists on board, chemists on board, looking at the sea ice, the ocean, the atmosphere, in all these different ways. But we're all largely focused on this kind of central question about the sea ice and its changes and how that ultimately affects everything else. You know, reaching from the weather to ecosystems and implications for uh, resource development and food supplies and more. Because the sea ice is more than just ice that's on land or on continents. It's swirling around in the ocean. Yeah, it's floating. And so sea ice does not affect things like sea level because it's already floating on the sea. But it is really important in our global system in general. Uh, It reflects a lot of sunlight. And so as the ice melts back, we change how much sunlight is reflected. And there's many other areas in which it's, it's really vital to the Arctic and the global system. We mentioned that you've been back and forth in this part of the world for 22 years How have you seen things change in that period? The sea ice has changed a lot. You know, 22 years ago, I was out there on my first Arctic mission on a ship that was uh, adrift in the sea ice, and we could no longer do that same drift. You know, now uh, in the summertime, that area is open ocean. So that's a big change, a big meltback. I've also seen important changes around kind of some of the land surfaces in in, uh, northern Canada uh, and elsewhere around Greenland where you see from year to year changes in the land surface uh, in melting permafrost and similar processes. Your personal field of study is in atmospheric science, specifically clouds. What, if anything, is different about clouds in the Arctic? Clouds are just truly amazing in the Arctic, and that's what's drawn me there for the last 22 years. One thing that is uh, particularly unique about Arctic clouds is the prevalence of what are called mixed-phase clouds. And these are clouds where there's liquid water, and ice water both together in the same cloud at temperatures that are below the freezing point. And so the, the really the confounding aspect of this is why is there liquid water when the temperatures are below the freezing point? And that's something that we're studying right now. We've been studying for a while, and Mosaic will provide lots of observations to help us better understand some of the processes that lead to the formation of liquid water clouds and ultimately the really important effects that they have uh, on the system. You mentioned that mission you were on at the beginning of your career. Have there been others that stationed people out on the ice like this? And how is Mosaic different? So the first mission that I you know, partook in in the Arctic was called Sheba. And this was where we froze a Canadian icebreaker in the, the sea ice north of Alaska. And that was for a full year. And there have been a number of other uh, kind of smaller vessels frozen in, uh, dating back to more than 100 years ago. So th- we are kind of building on this past of explorers going to the Arctic, but we're doing so now in, in a way that's, first off, in the current Arctic, which is different than the Arctic in the past, but more so now it's, it's harnessing all this new modern technology we have to really probe uh, the essential processes in a way that we've never really been uh, able to do before. You'll have 100 people on the ship anchored in sea ice at any given time, and these scientists are coming from many different countries, speaking many different languages. How do you communicate? Yes, right now we have scientists involved in Mosaic from 19 countries. We keep getting more every day. You know, fortunately for myself, the language of science right now is English, and so that makes it kind of easy for us to communicate in in terms of our spoken language. But importantly, we're also speaking a variety of languages in terms of our disciplines. And that's one of the biggest challenges for Mosaic is how do we talk? How do I, as an atmospheric scientist, talk to that biologist or talk to someone who studies the sea ice uh, in a way that ultimately we can harness the best pieces of our work to really cut across this Arctic system and develop the understanding we need? You're going to be there during the winter with no daylight. What about depression known as SAD or seasonal affective disorder? That can be an issue. Uh, a lot of time on the ships, 
We'll have full spectrum lighting to help with that. But, you know, each person responds in their own way. I will say that the last time I was out in the, in the Arctic wintertime, I didn't even notice the sun was down for a number of weeks because it was just so amazing, right? I was so absorbed in all the amazement of all the uh, these new scenes in the Arctic that I didn't even realize it was dark. Uh, then eventually it started to set in, but I think that, you know, ultimately for me, at least, uh, th- this amazement factor kind of overwhelmed the lack of sunlight. The way you describe the Arctic, the ice, and the animals, I'd say it's almost romantic. Is it for you a romantic place? It is very romantic. I continue to see scenes that just really make me stop and look in, in wonder. This happens whether it's you know a full moon rising uh, over sea ice pack or you know it's a polar bear. And given the changes that you're seeing, is it sad for you personally to see those? Yeah, that, that's a kind of a tough question. I mean, you're always rooting for the ice at some level, right? I mean, and as the ice melts back, that does feel like we're losing something. Although really, you know, as a scientist, I'm more motivated by the knowledge. You know, can we learn what's happening and ultimately make decisions that are appropriate with the, the best information? And, you know, if the, if the Arctic melts back more, you know, that's one potential pathway for the Earth system. And it will still be an amazing place. You know, I guess I'm torn. I'm on both sides of that fence. Matthew, thank you so much for joining me. I hope you have a wonderful trip. Great. Thank you for having me on. Atmospheric research scientist Matthew Shoup is with CU and NOAA in Boulder. We first spoke in September as the Mosaic mission to study polar ice in the Arctic was beginning. That mission is now the subject of a documentary, Into the Polar Night, which was released this month. It was filmed to be seen inside Museum Planetarium Dome Theaters. It's also available on YouTube as a virtual reality experience. Thanks for joining us today on Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.